Welcome to LSD's I Am The Law, a show about law jobs. In this episode, Kimber Russell, an account executive for Planet Depots, interviews an environmental advocate about his winding career path and how he balances his time between a sole litigation practice and a nonprofit he founded. This season's presenting sponsor is the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Corps, where over 1,200 JAG provide full-spectrum legal counsel at all levels of military command around the globe. Learn more at airforce.com slash JAG or facebook.com slash USAF JAG. Today we are joined by Justin Bloom. Justin is a 1996 graduate of Tulane University School of Law. Now, Justin, like many people going to law school, you came in really with the goal of doing environmental advocacy via the law. But over the course of a 20-year career, although you have done that, you've had to be kind of creative in how you approached it. And it took you kind of a while to get where you wanted to go. So tell us a little bit about what your first job out of law school was like. We know you worked in the Florida Keys for a small law firm where you mainly defended Monroe County in environmental takings cases. I clerked at a small firm my second summer. It was a private firm that had a significant aspect of business representing Monroe County environmental services. That was mainly doing environmental takings defense and also doing enforcement actions, typically against developers and polluters. After having a really great summer there, they invited me to work for them, and I went after I graduated. Monroe County is beautiful. It's the Florida Keys as well as the Everglades. So we had a fairly progressive county. I was able to to really dig right in on working on some, some good environmental issues. Tell us more about what it means to do an environmental takings case. What is an environmental taking? In the context of the work that I was doing, it was usually a developer that wanted to maximize their opportunities to develop in the Florida Keys. Everywhere was environmentally sensitive, and there were quite a few restrictions. So if the county denied them the permit to build as much as possible, as high as possible, as close to the water as possible, that might have been in contravention of county regulations, and they weren't able to get the permit they wanted to, they would sue the county, saying that it was a constitutional taking, denying them of their property rights. Now, you were in this job for a fairly brief amount of time. Why did you go on to pursue another position? Well, I loved living in the Keys. Key West is a little island. It's a fairly transient place, and I decided to move elsewhere in Florida back to Sarasota, where I'd gone to college and I had family, and relationships were involved. So it it wasn't because the work wasn't fascinating and I had a great opportunity down there. I think I really would have grown into this small firm and had a successful career, but I felt like uh, taking a hop and exploring different opportunities. At that point, I kind of diverged a bit from the hardcore environmental law career and did all sorts of different things. I worked with a a relative for a while in a general practice where I ended up doing all sorts of cases like immigration and tort cases and small contracts and pretty broad practice that got me actually quite a bit of court experience. What was your main practice area when you were doing the the general litigation? I, I speak Spanish. When I was living in Sarasota in college, I became active in a Hispanic advocacy organization and made a lot of contacts. So I ended up doing quite a bit of immigration 
and also I ended up doing quite a bit of uh, torts. And that was mainly just your run-of-the-mill uh, slip and fall and PI, auto accidents, and things like that. That seems to be a big 180 from what you were doing previously, but you were still interested in environmental work. So were you able to do any any kind of environmental work on the side at all? Yeah, I was. I got involved in doing pro bono work in the environmental law community. Uh, and there wasn't as much opportunity in Sarasota to do that kind of environmental law. Though I wasn't on a day-to-day basis really engaged in particular cases, I started building relationships and started getting involved in some pro bono work. And all that PI uh, and all the immigration and the general civil litigation kind of came to help. And that actually, it's a point to make. When I was in law school, I got so frustrated with having to take real property and having to take the general courses because all I wanted to do is do public interest environmental law. And I wasn't sure what that all had to do with it. (laughs) So you did make a big shift from Florida to New York. What took you to New York? Actually, I got married. My wife was an aspiring actress. And I was excited by the prospects of moving to the big city. Moved up there, and it was a big change. Never lived in in New York City. I didn't have family or a whole lot of friends up there. So we just kind of dove in. I went shopping for a job, and I was fortunate to get a job with a plaintiff's firm in New York City. At the time, the head of the firm was president of the local bar association, and it seemed to be a job with a lot of opportunity. I was fairly disillusioned, though. Why so? You know, I uh, I had illusions of, of grandeur, I think. And not only, you know, did I realize that it was it was going to be, it was a real slog, but also the practice, uh, the firm in particular, and I think that type of practice in New York City was not what I expected. I was fortunate to have worked with a small firm that had a lot of integrity and some good guidance. And I kind of got thrown into a situation where, to be frank, there was a lot of unethical activities would have been expected of me, let's say. And I, and I, I couldn't compromise. Could you give us a little more insight on how another young associate in a law firm might be able to identify potential unethical situations when faced with them and what they should do? I'll try to. Um, maybe I was unfortunate and again, I was young and, and maybe my radar has become more refined over the years. But and, you know, this is where your your CLEs or your courses in ethics aren't necessarily going to prepare you for what oftentimes is really just common sense, where in, in my case, besides having a, a workload, which was, I think, prohibited me from giving the cases the attention that they needed. But I think lawyers are faced with that oftentimes through their career. Really, the, the stark issue became when I was uh, preparing clients for a deposition in an accident case, and I was doing my thing, which I had developed over you know, practicing in that area for a few years. And the senior partner came into the room to see how the new guy was doing. And the fundamental thing that I was telling my clients, which you should always tell them, I think, is you got to be honest. You know, the answer is if you don't know the answer, you don't know it. If you know it, you really have to be be honest. And so, for example, if the light is red, it's red. And the senior partner went nuts. He took me outside. He's like, are you kidding? If the light was red, it was green. You know, I don't know exactly what he said, but he basically was really demanding that I coach these clients in a way where they wouldn't be being honest. 
that was not a very difficult call for me to make as to whether or not this was how this job was going to end up if I stayed in. So it would have been, I think, lucrative, but I would have been compromised. I was in a difficult spot because New York is a very expensive place and I didn't have family up there and I had a wife that was pursuing a acting career, which is difficult, but I couldn't do it and I quit shortly after that. But there was a bright spot, though. You were able to discover the Hudson Riverkeeper. So tell us about that organization and what you ultimately did for them. Yeah, so that is a great bright spot. So I was aware of the Hudson Riverkeeper, which was the first of what's now 260 waterkeepers around the world. In looking around for other jobs, I really was focusing, trying to get back to my commitment to pursue public interest in environmental law was fortunate at that time they were hiring a staff attorney. At the time, Hudson Riverkeeper was based in Garrison, New York, which is about an hour outside of New York City up the Hudson River in this beautiful area. So I basically took my dogs up there and and, uh, camped out on the porch and somehow convinced those guys to hire me. Yeah, tell us more about that. How How did you even manage to land that job? Because these jobs are so rare. You plopped out on the porch with your dogs and just waited to talk to somebody? Well, you know, I sent them an inquiry. I emailed them my resume. I think that they initially were interested, although I didn't necessarily have a interview set up, but the um, office was near the trailhead of this beautiful hike up in the Hudson Highlands. So I told them, hey, you know, I want to come up and go for a hike. Is it all right if I stop by and check the place out? And it just, it seemed like it was a really good fit. What specifically does an organization that deals with waterkeeping do? I'm still a big promoter of this model environmental advocacy, which was really started by the Hudson Riverkeeper, which was an outgrowth of a a group called the Hudson River Fishermen's Association. That was formed by kind of a ragtag ensemble of Korean War veterans and commercial fishermen and community activists on the Hudson River. I guess it was in the 60s. It was particularly focused on, on the fishery. They were faced with this burgeoning uh, industrialization of the the Hudson Valley and the pollution of the Hudson River, which was affecting their livelihoods, particularly these commercial fishermen that relied on good water quality for their catch. It got to the point where they were taking in these catches on a daily basis, and they, they could tell what color they were painting cars at the GM plant in Tarrytown by the color of the fish that they were taking up in their nets. And they were losing their livelihood and they banded together and they were going nuts. They were about to incite violence and they were catching these plots to like stuff uh, kerosene filled mattresses up the outfall pipe of the plant to blow it up. And and they were desperate. And remember, we're talking about pre-Clean Water Act and there weren't really a lot of tools to deal with situations like these. What came along was this guy, he was actually a reporter for National Geographic, I think at the time, or Sports Illustrated, who dusted off the Rivers and Harbors Act, which had a bounty provision saying, basically, you can't pollute public trust waterways. And and if you do, and you catch the polluter, and there's a fine, the citizens group can get a bounty. That created kind of the, the genesis, the funds that were raised through a number of these suits was the foundation for creating this nonprofit organization called the Hudson Riverkeeper. And at that time, Bobby Kennedy Jr., was a young lawyer who got involved with Hudson Riverkeeper, and he still, to this day, is the chief prosecuting attorney. So NRDC and Hudson Riverkeeper and 
Pete Seeger's Clearwater all came up around the same time. And, and they were very effective in using environmental laws as they developed back in the early 70s. The model really is you have a river keeper. He or she is actively engaged in protecting a particular water body. But all around the world now, we have water keepers that protect their local water bodies. There's lakes and creeks and streams and coasts. And they use whatever tools are available to them. Very often, it's environmental law. But there are some water keepers that have more of a science background or relationships with environmental educators um, to bring the tools that they have to bear on uh, whatever environmental problems are affecting their watersheds and the communities that that rely on those watersheds. So that's the general model that was developed by the Hudson River Keeper, and it grew into a, a small band of uh, like-minded water keepers, and they, they decided to create Waterkeeper Alliance, which became kind of an umbrella organization to support those efforts of their member water keepers. Support for I'm the Law comes from Barbary. Barbary is committed to legal education throughout the entire legal life cycle, delivering pre-law skills, law school study aid resources, a bar review course, and continued professional development and certifications for practicing attorneys around the world. Visit barbary.com for more information. Coming up, Justin tells us about his actual job at Hudson Riverkeeper. We'll also see how he's using the Waterkeeper model in Florida. We are kind of a startup and maintaining it with volunteers. To hear more episodes, subscribe to I'm the Law on iTunes or visit lscradio.com. And now as a staff attorney for Hudson Riverkeeper, what did your day-to-day work look like? I imagine that there was a diversity of issues you would be dealing with. So walk us through a typical day. We were fortunate in Hudson Riverkeeper to have a pretty sizable staff and ongoing projects. You'll find often in these smaller environmental organizations, you're just very much reactive. We were able to be a bit more proactive and to be kind of invested in some long-term issues. So one of those issues was working on the New York City water supply and protecting the quality of that kind of unique water supply system. But really more than anything, I I was involved on a day-to-day basis working on Clean Water Act enforcement cases and development challenges. And in the former, the Hudson Valley and the Hudson River still has and and had uh, a lot of industrial activities and regularly would have citizen suits where we had communities or individuals or even through our own investigations would find Clean Water Act violations of discharge waters, which were flowing into the Hudson directly or tributaries of the Hudson that either didn't have a permit for pollutants or were exceeding allowable levels of pollutants in their permits. Pursuant to the statute, we give them a notice and warning and also give the local regulatory authority the chance to prosecute the case as they should. But in many cases, the regulatory agency, whether it be the state, the feds, or or even the county, wouldn't jump in, which would give us the green light to initiate a prosecution by ourselves, by as a nonprofit, and often in coordination with other community groups or individuals to step in the shoes of government to prosecute under the Clean Water Act for those types of violations. 
I'm interested to know how the actual practice of being an environmental lawyer differs from what you imagined it would be when you were still in law school. We've all seen, or maybe not everybody, but many of us have seen How I Met Your Mother and the character Marshall, who was a law student dreaming of being an environmental attorney. How does how do you think the reality is different from what you imagined it to be? When I was in college, I started getting involved in environmental issues and those formative experiences had some insight into the legal practice. So, you know, I kind of saw how lawyers were fighting these fights. I'd been involved in them for quite a while. So I didn't really have this romantic notion of what what it was going to be like. I think the reality once I started practicing was how much more challenging it is than than maybe I thought. The funding uh, is always a great challenge to be able to undertake these cases to triage all of the potential cases and as a working for an environmental organization that represents various communities you know everybody's clamoring for us to engage in this or that issue and to to prioritize which cases we have the the capability of pursuing and the likelihood of success with very limited funds that was really challenging and having to say no to these passionate community advocates that wanted to stop this proposed development or that issue. Those are hard decisions to make. And, and although I was, I was more of a kind of a younger staff attorney and didn't have to make a lot of those decisions, those were hard, hard issues to grapple with besides just the challenges of the law and the politics involved. And once you have the case and you're pursuing it and you're trying to win it, there are always challenges involved with that. But there was a lot more in being involved with a community organization, a nonprofit organization that has funding challenges. So you did spend several years working for the Hudson Riverkeeper, but ultimately you chose to return to Florida and begin your own waterkeeper group. What motivated that shift and how did you deal with the funding challenges that you've already mentioned? Well, I'm I'm still very much dealing with those funding challenges. Yeah, I mean, I, I started my own waterkeeper about four years ago. But from that day that I started working with the Hudson Riverkeeper, I, I really saw how that model, the waterkeeper model, is very successful. And I always thought that it would be great one of these days to be the waterkeeper, be the riverkeeper, to kind of set up my own program. I settled in Sarasota and started my own waterkeeper organization, which is one of the you know several things that I do, and it's growing. It's a small organization, and ideally these waterkeeper organizations have a full-time staff, but we are kind of a startup and maintaining it with volunteers and a lot of my time, but at the same time I have to continue with my private practice and other ways of making money to keep the organization afloat. There are different ways of starting an organization, and this is a startup, although it's a waterkeeper. Waterkeeper Alliance doesn't provide funds for these programs. You really need to tailor it to the needs of your community and come up with your own funding plan. I was in a position to be able to start the organization without funding commitments. So I relied on my time and energy and some savings that I had to create what's called the Suncoast Waterkeeper and have been working at it for a number of years. We were faced with this like chicken versus egg. Do we start by trying to get a lot of funding and build up a staff and then really go at it or start kind of slowly and get involved in the issues, um, working really with volunteers and to create 
an organization with integrity and respectability and to build a name in the community and recognition and then try to raise money. We took that second route. And now we're at the point where I think we have a very good reputation and have been involved in some interesting issues. And uh, now we're setting about really trying to do some fundraising. So you are doing what you are passionate about, working with the Suncoast Waterkeeper, but you do have to support yourself financially. So how are you making ends meet? I'm multitask. Um, I have a lot of things going on. Probably should spend more time on the areas of my practice that are lucrative. I hope I don't neglect them by working so much on my, my passion in the Waterkeeper program. But But I maintain a small practice that I've developed over the years from... Shortly after I left Riverkeeper, I got involved in toxic tort and pharmaceutical litigation, developed a small niche practice. For a number of years, I really focused on that while continually working with Waterkeepers and Waterkeeper Alliance and and helping them pro bono. And and ultimately, actually, for a while, I, I worked for Waterkeeper Alliance. But all along, I've maintained my private practice, which uh, at this point is... Um, it's uh, still, it's, it's working. There was one case, though, that took uh, 11 years, but finally we settled recently, which actually I got involved in when I first was at Hudson Riverkeeper. And it's this case in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where uh, ExxonMobil and, and other oil companies had a major uh, oil spill. And there are actually a series of oil spills over the years. And Newtown Creek, this border between Brooklyn and Queens, was kind of the birth of the Industrial Revolution in the U.S. And it was and still is really terribly contaminated. But there was this one spill in particular where millions of gallons of oil ended up leaking out into the aquifer underneath the community. And these homes were built up and, and people living on top of this oil spill for decades. We discovered the situation, which had really been kind of shoveled over and, and ignored and brought it to light. And then it was a really good example of nonprofits working with for-profit firms and also working with regulatory agencies to address the situation and address it from the perspective of the nonprofit that was looking at water quality and the environmental benefits and the, the for-profit firm that addressed the uh, contamination issues, then the damages to the property owners and the people living in the community and the regulatory agency as well that jumped in and enforcing the uh, environmental laws. That was a, a great example of how a case can work well, but they're hard, they're hard to come by. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, the United States Air Force Judge Advocate General's Corps. Thank you also to Barbary and top-law-schools.com. I Am The Law is produced by Law School Transparency for LST Radio. If you want to hear more, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to lstradio.com.